one thing that I think is important is that a lot of times we're trying to find a silver bullet to resolve our problems. And nutrition can, for, of course, help a lot, but people really need to think about that there's environmental uh, circumstances, especially biosecurity. There's a lot of things that you um, management and then how you feel those birds, how you look in terms of the air quality. There's a lot of things that are, uh, that are involved whenever you're trying to control diseases and vaccination programs. So there's a lot of things and there is no silver bullet. It really is focusing on trying to do your best in all of the different segments for sure. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the Animal Nutrition Team at Eastman.com. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Um, today I am here with Maria Tara Long. Welcome to the show, Maria. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I'm really excited to chat about your uh, your experience in the poultry industry. But first, I want to hear how how did you get into the poultry industry? What sparked your interest in chickens? Yes. So I went to vet school in Brazil and then I actually, I feel like everyone has a poultry story and they never start like, oh, I always want to be a poultry vet. <laughs> so <laughs> mine is one of those. I actually went for small animals, but then with my first internship, I just figured out that I like small animals, not very happy with the owners. They just sometimes too crazy. And then, <laughs> yes, yeah, they think they're, they're the babies. <laughs> but anyway, I just decided that I was just looking around, looking at production, and then I decided to join a poultry club, and I just fell in love with the production. I like it, how dynamic the poultry in the industry is, how the nutrition is very far away from other species, and then also the the genetics. So I just got fell in love with that, and being in the poultry industry, I'm at least trying to study since my second year of vet school so almost 10 years already oh jesus I'm, I'm old oh that's that sounds really fun it, i think a lot of people come to the poultry industry through many different routes so you got a good interest in vet school so that's pretty awesome 
it's good that you had those experiences. Otherwise, you might be a dog and cat vet today. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to the position that you have currently? So what, what you do and um, your path, I guess. Yeah, so did vet school in Brazil and then I worked in a co-op as a poultry veterinarian there for two years after finishing. And then while I was working, I had the opportunity to come to the U.S. for doing my PhD in poultry science. So I came here in 2019 to do my, my PhD and I worked mainly with parasites, so Escherichia galli, did a little bit of work on coxie and blackhead and histomonas. And then now I'm wor still working on the gut health. So working with probiotics and prebiotics for poultry. Yeah, awesome. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your, your work with some of the different um, parasites that show up in poultry? That sounds really interesting. Yeah, so it was a little bit of everything. So for... The Ascrita Galley was basically my PhD research. And then on that one, it was a trial for seven months. And we were looking into alternative treatments for Ascrita. The focus were mainly um, small producers, so backyard producers. So we did a setup that was similar to what they would do. And then we put on top of feed uh, pumpkin seeds and also Artemisia absent. And then we did evaluation on microbiota, gene expression of cytokines, digestibility, and net quality. And long, short, uh, long story short, for the Ascaria itself, it didn't have any impact to both of them. Uh, although they do have the potential, and I, I, I really think that if it was the extract of each one of them that would have a higher concentration, they might have an impact on the worms. But what was interesting on that paper specifically was the digestibility data that we got. It. So we saw that the, the, the birds that were infected and not treated, they did have a decrease of digestibility in all nutrients, especially nutrients, especially calcium and phosphorus. And the birds that were treated, they actually maintained the same amount as the ones that were not treated. So that was interesting to maintain the levels of minerals, digestibility, and then we also saw this impact on eggshell quality. So we saw that the eggshells were uh, thicker and a little bit heavier as well. So that was interesting. Yeah. How did you pick those different additives? Is that something that uh, maybe was common in production already or just backyard producers sort of thought maybe it would work and you were confirming or denying? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pumpkin seeds for worms is something that we hear a lot of backyards saying that this was a feedback that we got from the extension agency in Auburn. And Artemisia, the same. Artemisia, the popular name is warm wood. So since the ancient Egypt, they say that it has some impact on worms. Uh, Artemisia, for people that don't know what it is, I don't, you heard about absinthe, the drinking. Yeah. Yeah, the one that makes people crazy. So the main <laughs> ingredient for that one is artemisia. But I promise you that the concentration that we put were low enough that the, the, no chickens were had, had any impact on those in terms of behavior. <laughs> they they weren't slower to do things or just generally more sedate. <laughs> Not that I noticed. Oh, that is too funny. Yeah, I think it's probably good to explain those since the, somebody might be familiar with a different version. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, you, oh, it was a safe. It was a safe dose. It was a safe dose. Yeah. Oh, that's too funny. So that that's pretty interesting, or that's really neat that you were able to do an. Ex- it's almost an extension project that um, some smaller producers had the question, and you were able to form formulate a study and look at some actual outcomes like molecular and digestibility. So I, that's kind of fun to see. So you can answer a question for somebody that might uh, not be able to really fund a study themselves. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we also, if you think about it, uh, this is coming back on my first chapter. My first chapter of my thesis, we looked into the uh, epidemic in terms of what kind of parasites are affecting a pasture poultry farm in Georgia. And then one thing that we saw is that for, we look at broilers, turkeys, and layers. And on the layer side, we saw coccidia, and we also saw ascaridia. And for both parasites, we saw this was in a year, and we saw that the higher numbers that we in countings, we did all these counting and countings, they were happening around uh, between July and August. So right there at the end of summer, beginning of fall, and then we 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 are uh, we are thinking that hypothesizing that maybe is related to the to the temperature. So higher temperatures will. Uh, had a, a better uh, a, an impact on the cycle of those uh, parasites, and then after the peak between end of the fall, we will see a drop going to winter. And if you think about pumpkins, the season that you see pumpkins is actually in November, so exactly on the winter. So maybe they think that pumpkin seeds work because they have on summer higher counts, and then they start using on November, and then they see a decrease of the counts. And they think, oh, it's a pumpkin seeds, but it's actually more a weather situation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So are, are there a lot of people that have smaller scale operations for all of those species? Or is are the smaller scale operations more laying hen, for example? I know a lot of smaller cities allow you to have up to six or so laying hens. So were you seeing the problem across all the species or mostly laying hens? Yeah, Ascaridia galli specifically, we saw more, more in, in laying hands. Basically, it's because of the, the length of the parasite. So it takes almost five weeks for you to, from the start to ingest the eggs, to start uh, cycling, and then broilers are just so short. But you can see some Ascaridia on broilers. And then in terms of broiler breeders, for example, we don't see much roundworms, but there is a good amount of... Heterakis, which is another one that we work a little bit in our lab. Yeah. So um, are there are there any, I guess, suggestions that you might have for someone to, act- to actually treat them? I mean, <laughs> instead of using pumpkin seeds or, or other, are there other proven or effective methods that you might recommend instead of those kind of folklore methods? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so th- that's one of the reasons. We also want, of course, to... To answer the backyard producers, if pumpkin seeds will be an option in Artemisia, but there really isn't many options for you to treat worms in the mm-hmm. U.S. that you really can use it that doesn't have any downtime period. Especially thinking about production of eggs, mm-hmm. it's basically the Fembendazole family, mm-hmm. and then yeah, that's actually an area that people really need to start studying on it because we only have that drug that is authorized in the U.S. And in North Korea, we haven't seen any resistance yet. But for example, on the ascaris that affect uh, turkeys, there has some vets already saying that they've seen some resistance. Oh, wow. So, 
Yeah, so a paper that I actually read that is a suggestion to reduce these chances of selecting uh, resistant parasites, it was basically trying to figure out what would be a good threshold in terms of OSIS count for you to, to, to really start treating the birds. Because mm. a lot of people treat it every, every X of weeks or something. And then we've seen that you, after you treat it, you have a, a decrease of your counts. But then they come back after that. Mm-hmm. And then on this paper, they try to, okay, whenever they reach this amount of assist, we go to treat it. And with time, you kind of see a reduction on the, on the load because the, the drug affects mainly the adults. They don't affect much of mm-hmm. the eggs. And the eggs of Ascaris, they can actually live in the environment for up to two years. Mm. So that's that's what what is the thing you need to treat the birds, but a lot of times the, your problem is the environmental, not exactly the birds. Yeah, yeah. So um, maybe best practices doing the fecal egg counts that would be <laughs> pretty smart. Yeah, it is it, an option, although it's not something that people do a lot, but it's an option and is something that is not that hard to do. You need an microscope. It's way easier to look on a microscope for worms than, for example, for coccyx. They're just bigger. The only thing that the eggs, uh, the eggs for Escheria galli and Eterachis are the same. So you're going to see that you have worms, but you don't know which one it is. Not exactly the same, but you really need to be very, very good to do the differentiation. So we normally see those Escheria's eggs. Yeah. Oh, that sounds tricky. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is. And then in our case, people were like, oh, how you know that it was Ascaridia and not Eterachis? We actually ran a mm. PCRs and we did necropsy at the end of the trial and we didn't look. We, we look on seeker and we didn't see any sick worms, so just the yeah. round worms. But yeah, yeah, basically for you to know, you need to run PCRs to differentiate or open the birds and see what you find. In. Yeah, yeah, which maybe isn't always possible if the Unless the bird, you know, passes away normally. <laughs> People are pretty attached to their chickens, which is understandable. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <sighs> what other uh, diseases have you been, been working on in poultry? Yes. Yeah, so another um, research trial, that, not trial, but another project that we got involved a lot during my PhD, and yet it was actually published last Friday. Uh, is about so histomonas. So on that one, we look into uh, pullet, uh poultry farms for broiler breeders, and we set up a different sets of traps for uh, collect uh, as many arthropods that we can find it. So we will set up traps inside and outside the houses, and then we wanted to look on two things on this trial. We wanted to see what kind of insects or invertebrates are we going to find inside and outside? And then after we collected and looked over a year, what are the ones that are the most common ones? And then they could be potential vectors of other diseases. And then working on parasites, we focus on Eterachis and Histomonas. Eterachis because we know that Histomonas cannot live a long, a long time outside the host. And Eterachis ended up being the accidental host for that as well. So what did you find seasonally? Like what are the, what, what's the seasonality to what kind of insects or, or bugs you found in the barns? Yeah, so seasonality, we didn't see much of impact inside mm-hmm. the 
comparing inside yeah. and outside jobs. Inside the house, we didn't see much. And we also, the majority of the, the, the insects that we collected were outside the houses, which is good. It means that police people were being able to, in a, in, in a certain level, to control a little bit of the insects inside and yeah. avoiding them to get inside the houses. So 72% of the insects, they were more outside than inside. So inside, we didn't see much of a variation in terms of seasonality. But outside, we did see what we expected, with summer being the, the high amount of, of insects that we were seeing throughout the year. So that was interesting. And then if we also actually look on diversity of those insects, mm-hmm. we did some alpha and beta diversity analysis. And then what we saw is that we saw, we didn't see much in terms of seasonality, in terms of alpha diversity, but we saw in terms of inside and outside, being outside with very high alpha diversity compared to inside. But whenever we look on the beta diversity, so looking on the populations on our different time periods that we collected, we did see that there was a tendency for the bird, for the insects that were collected in the fall to be uh, grouped in a side of the graphic and then the summer and also the spring as well. So we saw this difference in better diversity on the birds, on the birds, not on the insects. So that was interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, so did you, did you collect any insects that you think are direct vectors for some of these different diseases or were, were you able to correlate anything with the inside versus outside? Yes. So what we did it, we, looked specifically on darkling beetles because these are the ones that we hear a lot of people saying that they are potential vectors of other diseases and they have been correlated to some bacterial ones. So we decided to to run PCRs for QPCR for Tarakis and for Histomonas for the darkling beetles and we also select some insects. The selection of the beetles, basically all of the, the, the type points that we collected, we had beetles. So we basically collected 10 beetles for each farm. So we had two different companies and for each company, four houses, two houses. So four houses a total. And then for the insects, what we did, it, we thinking about being a potential vector, we collected the bugs that we saw that they were inside and outside at the same time. And we tried to, to, to select the, the insects that we were also seeing in most of the, in the four farms and also most of the seasons. So that's the criteria that we came up with. And we actually also ran the, the PCRs. And we actually, after we, we saw the, the positive flies that we, we find it for heterarchies and histomonas, we also did sequencing on them to try to identify at least the genus of those as well. So were any of those parasites or I should say insects directly linked to carrying histomonas? Yes. So the direct link, since we ran PCRs, it means that we identified the DNA. So I don't call them uh, vectors. We call them potential vectors. Just because see persistency of the, of the DNA doesn't mean that they are actually transmitting. That will be a next step. But we did saw positive samples. So basically for for the beetles, we saw that we actually had an outbreak in one house. And on the house that we had the outbreak, we saw at the time of the outbreak that there was two beetles out of the 10 that we evaluated. So 20% of those. One was positive for histomonas and the other Mm -hmm. one positive for histomonas and heterarchies. 
Oh, and four gosh. months after that, the outbreak, we saw five beetles. So 50% of the beetles that were evaluated that was positive for either histomonas of both parasites. So we saw a persistency of this infection on the beetles. And we saw the same behavior on the flies. So the flies, we saw that at the outbreak, there were three flies that were positive for either Histomonas, Eterachus, or a combination of both. And then another fly that was positive three months later. So seeing the persistency of these paras- the DNA parasite on the, the insects that we evaluated. Yeah. So it sounds like several different insects could be carrying these diseases. It's not just uh, like one type. It could be an issue because you've got several options or several potential vectors, right? Yes, yes. So that's that's what we discussed in the paper a lot. We still need to do a lot of research and really confirm the infection and everything. But it was interesting to see because those all the 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 the, the the ones that were positive, they were all flies. So they, we call it for the dipter. All the mm-hmm. flies that were evaluated, we, as I mentioned, they were inside and outside the houses. And they were in all of the seasons that we saw and also all of the different farms. And they were positive. While the beetles, we did see the positivity as well. But an interesting fact that we saw is that basically out of all the beetles that we collected, only three, it was almost 800 beetles that we collected. Only three of them were outside the, the, the houses. The rest of them were inside the house. And then whenever we look on the traps, only one beetle was in the trap that it was basically for flying insects. The other of them, they were collected in the floor. So what we see in the study is that the beetles, they are basically staying in the house. They are not moving from house to house. So what uh, although they can't transmit a lot of diseases, we we just raise the what if. What if we look on beetles because they are the ones that we see the most because they're very big to see compared to some mm-hmm. of those flies. But they're not the ones that are exactly the most important ones in transmission because they're staying in the house. Yeah, they set up shop and they stay there. <laughs> yes. And then, of course, we see a lot of beetles and they, they were the insects that we saw the most. But that's that's one thing. Maybe just because you see a lot of them doesn't mean that they have this potential epidemiologically to be the most transmitter one. And maybe we're just overlooking on other things. Yeah, that that would make that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> um, so what what are what are some of the projects that you're working on now? We work a lot with yeast, yeast mm-hmm. probiotics. So. Uh, yeast cell walls, more uh, specifically, and then yeast probiotics. And we also basically on the phase of learning everything. And it's very excited to see like how much research we have involved in them and then focusing a lot on the production of alter, uh, production that doesn't use antibiotics. And we see in the U.S. that it's basically half percent of the half percent of all of yeah, half of the production we have in the U.S. is antibiotic-free, yeah. so they are good alternatives, and it's very exciting for me to be working on that part. Yeah, yeah. So, what um, do you have any advice for someone who might be choosing a probiotic or a yeast product? Is there are there what what can you look for? I know there's a lot of options. Some of them have a single species, some have multiple. So, what are the things to look for? I guess 
um, when thinking about the probiotics that are offered? Oh yeah, that's that's a good question. And as I mentioned, as you mentioned, there really is a lot of options. Uh, for me, what you need to look at it is really on the data. So look how much data you have to back up your your information. What kind of trial was done? If it was a research trial, if it was a, a field trial, both trials have good valuable information. So really focus on, on the data to to see it and. Once you look and you've got like your final four or final three, try it with yourself and see what works best for you. Because at the end of the day, it needs to be something that is going to help the animal. At least, if you're not with performance, at least working, for example, salmonella control, reducing the, the, the slopes, we see that there's a lot of pressure on the brother side and also layers all the time to have the lower concentration as ever as possible in terms of challenges. Yeah. So focus on this on the data and focus on what you want to look at in terms of performance, in terms of food safety. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, are there certain environments where you see that some of the probiotic or yeast products work better? Like, would they be more useful? I guess in an, in an environment that has more challenges. Like, what are what are some of the trends that you're seeing as far as yeast goes? Yes. So, for example, focusing on the yeast cell walls that we use a lot for salmonella control, we do see that the higher the, 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 the challenge, the, the, the bigger is going to be the drop in terms of prevalence. And another thing that we've seen is that if not only you're going to see a drop, but if you continue with time, you're going to see that your first flock, your second flock, your third flock, you're going to see a trend of reduction of, of the salmonella. So, which is good because then you're going to not only have a reduction, but maintaining the product, you're also going to maintain the lower doses for sure. Yeah. Um, so what's it like uh, kind of in your current role, having the both the DVM and the PhD? Like how do you integrate those into the work that you're doing? Oh, it, it's great. First, because whenever I go to a nutrition conference, I can just start with the joke. I'm a vet, so I don't know anything. And <laughs> you've, you've done some work. <laughs> yeah, they love it. They love it. That's the best joke that you can tell to really like a uh, nice breaker. Everyone's like, okay, so let's hear what you say. But it, it really is interesting. I feel like we, we know there there is like this historical nutritionist vet versus veterinarians and what a vet is doing the nutrition work. But especially right now that we are working on alternative antibiotic and really start to study the microbiota, the impact on immune system. This is something that is right there in the middle between nutritionists and between veterinarians. And you really cannot talk about one thing without talking to the other one. You really need to integrate both. So I just feel like in the best of both worlds, on my research, in my PhD, I did some microbiotic tri uh, trials. We also look on gene expression of cytokines. So for me, it makes sense to where I am right now and the vet background and looking on diseases that help a lot. And also, I'm learning a lot for sure in the nutrition side. And that's the beauty of everything. Yeah. Yeah, you get to expand both. <laughs> Um, so just from like a, a veterinary side, I know things kind of cycle as far as what diseases are of concern, but um, what are the things that people are focusing on right now that they might try to use some of these probiotics to help? Like are there specific, other than salmonella, kind of reducing that overall, but 
um, from just a veterinary perspective, what have you, what have you seen that needs solving? Like what kind of things are out there that are prevalent right now that need a, a nutritional solution? Yes. So what I've been seeing a lot and talking with, with people in the field is that besides, of course, coxie problems, of course, and, and, and necrotic enteritis, we've seen a lot of diseases that are related to gut indirectly. For example, enterococcal sarcoma or dermatitis that is, is not exactly uh, a lesion in the gut, but is related with bacterial translocation that is caused by a leaky gut. So that I've seen a lot of research and we do need to look on that part on focusing on the gut health and really trying to reduce this bacteria translocation to reduce other problems that we're seeing in the field right now. Yeah. Yeah. So you can kind of put together nutrition um, and also some of your veterinary background to help solve <laughs> solve some of those problems. Yeah, what, what are some of the unique problems with broiler breeders? I know there are just general issues because it's a, a meat bird that is also trying, you know, to go through reproduction and whatnot. But do you, do you have any, uh, I guess, ideas that are kind of specific to that segment of the industry? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> the broiler breeders always intrigue me just because we're ask, you know, we're asking a meat bird to reproduce and they, <laughs> it's just different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it is different. And it's basically a whole new world. I know there is a lot of concerns, just as you mentioned, making uh, a meat bird to reproduce. So controlling the weight is something that there's a lot of issues on it. I know in terms of a nutrition side, I'm not an expert in that. But there's a lot of focus on trying to really figure out a, a program for the breeders to really control this weight. And then there's uh, animal welfare concerns on that one on the top. So it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's always uh, interesting to have different segments of the poultry industry because there's different challenges, right, with, with each of those. Um, so today, before we go into the three questions that we ask every guest, is there anything else that... Uh, you think is important to talk about from kind of the subjects that we were on today with the different uh, potential uh, disease vectors or any potential ways to maybe modulate the environment to reduce those? Any other ideas to add? Yeah, one thing that I think is important is that a lot of times we're trying to find a silver bullet to resolve our problems. And nutrition can, for, of course, help a lot, but people really need to think about that there's environmental uh, circumstances, especially biosecurity. There's a lot of things that you uh, management and then how you feel those birds, how you look in terms of the air quality. There's a lot of things that are, uh, that are involved whenever you're trying to control diseases and vaccination programs. So there's a lot of things and there is no silver bullet. It really is focusing on trying to do your best in all of the different segments for sure. Yeah, it, yeah, it's integrated. There's, there's not, there's usually not one cause, but once in a while there is. I mean, there, there are some good examples of specific issues, but yeah, it's integrated. <laughs> I think that that's sage, sage information, um, especially for people trying to grow in the antibiotic-free uh, aspect or part of segment of the industry. It's time for our famous three. 
The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. Um, so, so we can end today with uh, the three questions that we ask all of the guests. And the first question is, what is a poultry-related resource that you refer to frequently? Do you have a favorite? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So on LinkedIn, I really see a lot of nice pages that give you some 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 short information about it, what is happening right now. So I saw a recent one is Modern Poultry. I really like to see what they're doing. They just started. And Poultry Health Today is another one that I've been seeing for a long time. They They have a lot of videos on YouTube. So those are two ones that I really like it a lot. Yeah, they uh, up to date news. That's that's a good. <laughs> yeah, what's going on? Um, do you have a favorite non poultry related book or resource? Uh, not non poultry, but maybe a tip for for the students since I just graduated. Yeah, uh, there is the this page called the Cheeky Scientist. Oh, and they, yeah. I don't know if you heard it, but I, yes. they really focus on PhD students and how to 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 look for jobs and how to really sell yourself because whenever you're PhD, a lot of times it's just overthinking. You don't know how to sell yourself. So it's just a good tip for, for students to check it because they have a lot of free material and it kind of helped me to be where I am right now. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's a great suggestion um, for resources for students or others. Cool. Awesome. Um, so the last, the last question is, do you have any advice for how to be successful in the poultry industry? That's a good one. And I basically just thought it, but <laughs> <laughs> I would say not only poultry industry, but just overall try to to be humble, try to focus on know what you know and know what you don't know. And if you're humble and if you're nice to people, they, you're going to have a lot of resources to help you out and really build a, build a network and exchange, exchange experience. So just try to be nice. <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's great advice for outside of the poultry industry as well. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really informational. I love hearing about the different topics that people work on, so I always learn something. Thank you for having me today. Uh, you're welcome. Have a, a great rest of your day. 